Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Jokes Steph Can't Tell began because Jenny was writing monologue jokes and she noticed that there were jokes that she loved that Seth just could never say out loud. That voice belongs to the very talented Amber Ruffin. Before becoming a host herself of The Amber Ruffin Show on the streaming service Peacock, Amber was a writer and performer on Seth Meyers' Late Night Show on NBC. Amber and her pal, Jenny Hagel, another Seth writer, were in the show's writer's room one day, just kind of riffing on the fact that As a black writer, Amber, and a gay writer, Jenny, they naturally thought of jokes that were decidedly outside the frame of reference for Seth, who is neither black nor gay, and also a guy. The new movie Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, features a lesbian kiss. And for most women, so does college. We didn't think it was going to be anything. We just thought it would make us laugh. Um, Seth was like... This is great. We'll do it on the show. We did it on the show. It was great. And we were like, okay, well, we did it. And then they were like, when are we going to do the next one? And I thought, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. But um, it survived. It was uh, Jenny's idea because she didn't like the number of perfect lesbian jokes that were going in the garbage. There is no area off camera more important to every late night television show than the writer's room. Let me take you inside for a tour. Throughout the long history of the genre, the typical late-night writer's room would resemble a corporate conference room after the Visigoth got through with it. A conference table and chairs, yes, but also piles of debris, rolled-up paper balls of failed jokes, empty pizza boxes, half-eaten donuts, Alison Silverman, who has written for Legends, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, got her first exposure in the late night room for another legend, Conan O'Brien. Felt more like what you think of a writer's room being, where people are like, you know, I remember there was a tile that was missing from the ceiling, and there were all these old soda cans that people had thrown up there. <laughs> it was very, very filthy and, you know, fun. Beyond the trash, the room is filled with a lot of anxious, uptight people mostly young men. Because certainly through much of the history of late-night television writers, rooms could be described as man caves. Very male, very unkempt. The writers at the table who are assigned to work on the nightly comedy monologue have spent their workday on a specific duty. Sit at a desk and think funny, then grind out a list of jokes. A good long list, not 10 or 20, more like 40 or 60 or more. It's the equivalent of a kitchen in a crowded short order burger joint. Pound out those patties, grill them up fast, and give me plenty of them. And oh, by the way, if you're slow, if your patties are uneven or undercooked, if you can't cut it, 
we have a big roster of people hanging around outside on the corner who would do almost anything to sit at this table and be funny in your place. Welcome to show business. I'm Bill Carter, and this is Behind the Desk, the story of late night. We're going to be talking about the beating heart of most late night television shows, the writers. What is the profile of these unusual people, the folks who spend every working day of their lives taking the raw materials of daily events and reducing them to maybe two lines that will somehow make an audience of strangers laugh out loud? What is the process that makes this formula work successfully four or five nights a week, year after year? What does it take to do this job? What kind of person does it? A young person. Robert Smigel is one of the great writers in late night history, having created unforgettable sketches for Saturday Night Live and just as memorable bits and characters for Conan O'Brien on his late night show on NBC, including, of course, the world's funniest cigar-chewing puppet, Triumph, the insult comic dog. Triumph said he wanted to go and check out uh, Bon Jovi and the Bon Jovi show. So he went, he brought a camera crew. Here's what happened. The electricity here in the New Jersey air is almost as powerful as the other smells. The older you get and the more real life uh, distractions and uh, concerns you have, the harder it is to do that on a daily basis. I don't know how some of these guys do it. I guess they just compartmentalize and they, they just... Um, they don't, they don't bring it home. Like the guys who stay at these late night talk shows now for 20 years, that, that seemed unthinkable. But when you're young, I mean, I just threw everything I had into my work. I was literally like a crazy person. Few people give even glancing thoughts to comedy writers, but they do have a long history. What we think of as gag writers emerged in the early 20th century in vaudeville, and then, more prominently, in radio. The art of doing an actual monologue began to be refined on radio by performers like Will Rogers, who made his name with topical and political humor. A Will Rogers joke. The difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. That is a formal, written, set-up, punchline, topical joke. Rogers, more than anyone else, put that form into the culture because of radio. And yes, Will Rogers did have joke writers, including Maury Amsterdam, who later played a joke writer on The Dick Van Dyke Show. But the first comic, deeply associated with what we now consider the topical monologue, was undoubtedly Bob Hope. Now, I thought about retiring this year, but Sinatra beat me to it. <laughs> It'd be too much to lose two sex symbols in one year. Pope was opening shows with a traditional-sounding monologue for more than 50 years, and he probably employed at least that many writers. Pope joked about a long succession of presidents, starting with FDR. Did you know FDR met with Churchill about the invasion of Europe? And he asked Winston, how will we keep Eleanor out of the crossfire? I want to tell you. Pope was so invested in jokes, he kept all of his, and he kept them in a vault, more than 500,000 of them. And he always had a stable of joke writers at hand, 15, 20 of them, 
to feed him lines when necessary, like at a lunch in England, which featured most of the royal family. This looks like a chess game, live. Most of Hope's writers were older guys who'd been writing gags since the beginning of vaudeville. They often got paid by the joke, which was still happening in Late Night many years later. Jay Leno, when he hosted The Tonight Show, had a whole bunch of freelance writers faxing in jokes every day. 75 bucks for each one used. These were just ordinary people who could think funny. Even a rabbi at one point. Famously, after Johnny Carson retired from The Tonight Show, he missed doing his nightly monologue so much, he would read the news in the morning and write out a monologue by himself which he would then perform on the phone for an audience of one, his old friend and producer, Peter LaSalle. Peter thought many of the jokes were genuinely good, and he finally convinced Johnny to send them in to David Letterman. Johnny would then watch Dave on TV at home like any other nervous comedy writer to see if one of his jokes would make it into Letterman's monologue. If it did, Johnny would call Peter LaSalle excitement and pride in his voice. Hey, Peter, did you watch? I got a joke on the air last night. Dave used one of my jokes. And Johnny got his 75 bucks, just like anyone else. Writers on staff do much better than that, of course. Staff sizes have grown over the years. When Steve Allen started The Tonight Show in 1954, he had four writers for a show that went on for an hour and 45 minutes. Now, staffs range from about 12 or 13 for a half-hour show once a week, like John Oliver's or Samantha Bee's, to a high of 20-plus writers for a network-style show, like those hosted by Stephen Colbert or Jimmy Fallon. That sounds like there's a lot of potential jobs. There aren't. The competition to land one is about on par with making an NBA roster, and being really tall doesn't help though the tall guy might be able to get those soda cans out of the writer's room ceiling. Staff writers come from all over. Stand-ups, of course, who are accustomed to writing formal jokes for themselves, but also exiles from advertising copy, sometimes former speechwriters. Yeah, even a few journalists now and then. Word people, for sure. Most writers, or people who think they're writers, chase these jobs avidly. The salaries are good. So are their network benefits. It also comes with certain bragging rights. When your friend from high school tells you she's just become vice president of marketing for some tech firm, it's pretty nice to be able to come back with, oh, I'm a writer for Trevor Noah. To secure one of these precious positions, writers generally pick out a show that they'd like to write for and then laser focus on the kind of material the host seems to like doing. Then they put together what is called a packet. This is a submission containing a range of original written material. Jokes, bits, stunts, the very best they can do. Next, they strategize to find a way to get their packet into the hands of a show's head writer. If they have an agent or manager, that can be relatively easy. If they happen to be the ex-speechwriter for a city councilwoman somewhere, it might be more challenging. They can maybe try to find a contact on the show somewhere, anywhere. A friend who went to the head writer's bar mitzvah? That might work. Or 
they could ambush the host outside the men's room. That was how one writer turned famous late night host broke into the business back in the 1960s when network security apparently wasn't fully developed yet. Oh, I had it all cased. I knew how to get into every part of the RCA building or sneak into the Tonight Show. In the early 60s, Dick Cavett loved Jack Parr's Tonight Show. Cavett picked up on how Parr made clearly written gags sound like ad-libs, as well as on Jack's fondness for story-based jokes. It's a story about a man who gave up smoking cigarettes. He just bought an O'Henry bar instead. But then he had to give up O'Henry's because they were too hard to keep lit. (laughs) Cavett, just out of Yale, with a mind tuned toward Groucho-style rat-a-tat verbal wit, thought he had what it took to write for Jack Parr. He literally cased the NBC headquarters at Rockefeller Center to find a way to get into The Tonight Host's personal space. I knew the territory. I knew to station myself halfway between the men's room and Jack's office. And Jack came out of, obviously, there, because there was nothing else down that hall. And I had put my submission in a time envelope. And later, a couple of people said that was a really bright thing to do. I remember I had it in the normal, and then I went back to my apartment, and I thought, this is going to, oh, this doesn't make me late, but I've got to put it in a time envelope. Jack had a history with time, so I knew it would catch his eye, and he saw it, and he said, oh, time, man. I said, I'm not really a writer, Jack, there, I'm a a copy boy, but uh, I wrote some stuff for you. He he took it, put it in his inside pocket, said goodbye, came out to do the show, reached for his inside pocket, and I thought, I may be made by this moment. And he pulled out envelope, and... um, it turned out it was a comedy bit that some writer had said. I, I think I shrank and shrunk down into my seat. And, and then he started ad-libbing my lines, working them into the show. Beautiful. Met him in the later elevator afterwards, of course. I have to get into the same elevator. And he said, you want to write, kid, don't you, kid? Send me some more in a week and uh, we'll get together. The late night submission gauntlet has surely squashed many talented writers whom we wound up never hearing of. And even some we have. A fresh out of Harvard Conan O'Brien sent a packet to his idol, David Letterman, and was passed over. And all the shows definitely cold-shouldered far too many talented women and people of color. Writers' rooms from the 1950s through most of the 90s were paleolithic in their attitude toward gender. If a late-night show had one female writer, it was a breakthrough and she would often feel isolated and scrutinized. Alison Silverman loved the challenge of writing for Jon Stewart on The Daily Show, but it was lonely. I was the only woman there, so I had uh, a bathroom that was kind of all to myself, and there were a lot of tears in the bathroom, for sure. (laughs) Things were no better on race, until Arsenio Hall proved a black host could make a lot of noise in late night. Few writing staffs had much, if any, minority representation. When Hall left the scene, so did many African-American writers. Only in recent years have more writers of color found significant jobs in late night, like Michael Che, the co-head writer at Saturday Night Live. So if a writer does manage to grab a chair when the music stops in the late night writer's room, 
what sort of work and life awaits them. We'll talk about that and more when we return to Behind the Desk after a short message. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Jimmy Brogan is a career stand-up comic, so he has lived his life writing jokes. He knows what it's like to be on stage trying to get laughs and to be in a writer's room trying to get laughs for someone else. In his case, Jay Leno, whom Jimmy worked for as the top monologue writer for a decade. The day-to-day process Jimmy describes as floor manager at a joke factory, grinding out thousands of new models every week, is unlike any other in show business, or probably any other kind of business. Jay would probably read 400 jokes for the monologue to do to get those 25 jokes that he would do. So Jay would just be reading jokes all day, and I would go to his house at 10 o'clock at night, and we'd sit there going over jokes till 2 in the morning to get maybe half the monologue kind of set for the next day, and then we'd add more. When I would come in in the afternoon, we'd add another uh, 10 or 12 jokes to the monologue, and that would be it. But So my job wasn't so much writing. I, I did write some of the jokes. I would kind of rewrite some of the stuff. Uh, like we, uh, the guy, one of the founders of Campbell's Soup had passed away. Yes. And, <laughs> What's his name? Campbell. I don't, <laughs> it, it could, I don't even remember <laughs> now. But, uh, and uh, I said, oh, the punchline should be, uh, he's now mm dead. <laughs> and Jay laughed, and that got in the monologue. So I, I, would, I, would, I would fix jokes, and I would fix the wording of the jokes, and sometimes the punchline. But so you're, you're there, and there's this pile of jokes, right? Uh-huh. Hundreds of jokes. Yeah. And they're on cards? Uh, yes. They, they would bring them in on, uh, you know, eight and a half by 11 right. paper, give them to Jay. Jay would check the jokes that he liked, and he would probably check 100 to 150 jokes I would come in in the afternoon and go through and pick out maybe the 10 that I thought was best. Yeah. So th- this is a very interesting role because you're sort of making a judgment of what you think 
an audience is going to laugh at. That's right. right. That's right. And sometimes you're right. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and sometimes not, right? And there'd be famous moments when Jay would turn to you sitting off a little bit off to the stage yes. and the camera would go on you and say, I told you that wouldn't work. <laughs> That's right. And <laughs> and then I'd have to go up and give him a buck. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you had a bet. We had a bet on it, yes. <laughs> well, we didn't always technically bet on it, but it became kind of a thing. And uh, I would always make sure I had a dollar in my pocket so I could give Jay a bill. And Jay always gave me a 20. If, if Jay said, oh, Brogan, you were right on that joke, yeah. he would give me a 20. So <laughs> even though I was humiliated on TV, I was making $19 That's in, the, true. in the transactions. <laughs> Johnny Carson elevated the late-night monologue to a witty observation of the day's events. Topical jokes, that is. And he made it long, 15 to 20 jokes at least every night. Jay Leno expanded it past 25. The jokes counted on the audience being at least somewhat up to speed on the news. Many jokes even began with Carson saying, oh, did you see this in the news today? That was like a cue to every aspiring joke writer. So what does it take to be a comedy writer on a late night show? What do you have to be able to do? Uh, Just write jokes. Just read the news and uh, extract jokes somehow out of the news. John Stewart took topical jokes to the next level by developing his entire show around one news story or at least a series of related news stories. More and more, Stewart's Daily Show functioned as an alternative to the official news, either explaining or more often contradicting the official version. For a writer, this added a new level of challenge to find out which news story the host was interested in parodying before you even start to write. Alison Silverman, who started her career writing for Conan O'Brien, found The Daily Show a daunting new beast. You know, the most stressful thing was, at the time, you would have from about 9.30 or 10 to noon to write your jokes. We would start off and have a writer's meeting and discuss with John and the head writer uh, what stories we were interested in. Then we had, you know, two, two and a half hours Um, to write our take. You know, each person would have one or maybe two stories to write an entire kind of joke-filled monologue on. And then we would reconvene, and one by one, we would uh, read our scripts out loud. And that was definitely stressful. (laughs) That was very scary. Um, And... uh, you know, that it was just a bit of a trial by fire. Everyone was super nice, but you just can't, you know, quite get over the fact that you're bombing someday. <laughs> so this was an added test. Write the jokes and then sell them on your feet to the head writer and the staff. And what if they don't laugh? Of course, you can really get in your head. If, you know, like any performance type thing, you know, if if you feel like you did one day and then the next day it feels like the pressure is on and then maybe you fail that day and pretty soon it feels like you're in a slump and people could really get stuck in that. Would the other writers laugh when you came up with a line or, or was it so much a part of the work that nobody actually would say, oh, that's funny and just write it down? So, uh, well, that's funny. When you, when you hear, well, that's funny, uh, I think as a comedy writer, you're, you're never happy with that because that just feels <laughs> like it's kind of a, you know, it's an intellectual confirmation of something. But humor is hopefully not just intellectual. There's something more mystical about it, something more, I don't know, ethereal or something, harder to capture. Um, so if someone says that's funny, um, that's always a bit of a bummer. Um, but we would, uh, I feel like a lot of times we would get real laughter. 
Two roads diverged on the way to the writer's room. One is taken by the pure writers, the people who get funny thoughts in their heads and try to find someone to deliver them because they themselves can't conceive of getting on a stage and facing a crowd thinking, okay, funny person, now make me laugh. The other is a path taken by the performers, comics themselves, who want the steady work of writing for a host. They use their own experience as performers to guide their instincts about what's funny. Because I came up in improv, I didn't know that people just wrote comedy without performing. And I'm still kind of like, how are you doing that? In that performer category is Amber Ruffin. In my mind, writers are made and you're made by an audience, you know? And if you're not performing all of the time and being booed or yayed by an audience on a regular basis, then how are you coming to conclusions that things are funny or not? You know what I mean? Like, it's just you and your brain all alone. I I don't know. I'm still leaning on those, what, what like, 10 years of shows I did to, you know, even construct sentences in a funny way. You just learn so much by performing. It is like a, a basic training for comedy. Far from being intimidated by the daily demands of writing, for a longtime performer like Amber, the prospect of trying on the anonymity of the writer for a while was appealing. Well, look, if, if it's, that's not as stressful as having to perform, you know, 10, 12 shows a week. That's, that's when you have to be funny in a moment's notice, you know, because when the audience shouts out lemon, you have to, you know, instantly write a song that says sour and yellow and treat, you know. Yes. If, if you have to write a sketch about a talking lemon, well, you got two days. You know, yeah. so it's infinitely less stressful than being a performer. And I feel spoiled every day. The other bifurcation on a writing staff comes in the nature of the assignment. Comedy in late night almost always breaks down to two categories. Pure joke writing for the monologue and conceptual writing for the sketches. There is often some crossover. A sketch writer might think of a devastating political joke and it will make it into the monologue. Or a joke writer might have a sketch idea in the shower one morning. But mostly the jobs are separate. Amber Ruffin, with her improv background, was hired to think in sketch terms. Here's how I write a sketch. I go, okay, I want to be a bear you know, who's hibernating. And all I want to do is get back to sleep. And I'm being interviewed by Seth about, uh, you know, I don't know, climate change. So in order for me to be able to be sleepy time bear, oh my God, this is a great idea. (laughs) I really (laughs) just feel this up, but I think I'm going to write this up. (laughs) I'm sleepy time bear and all I want to do is go to sleep. But Seth wants to talk to me about uh, global warming. So in order for me to do that, Seth needs to say the following things. Global warming is affecting everything. It's, a, it's even affecting how much sleep bears get. Here to talk to me is a bear who is in the middle of hibernation. You know, because if I just say, I'm a sleepy bear, yeah. we haven't covered enough and I get no laughs because I have to do the explaining. 
But that's the purpose that Seth serves. He does all the crap work. So you, whatever (laughs) you need the audience to know in order to laugh at you, Seth says. It's it's the best study in that. And frankly, that sounds like a funny sketch. (laughs) Great. Do you think Sleepy Time Bear has legs or not? I I, I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's face it, folks. If you can think of Sleepy Time Bear on the fly, just talking to me about how to write a sketch, you are definitely qualified to write for a late-night show. As he did with almost every late-night tradition, Stephen Colbert completely turned the joke writer sketch writer split on its head when he created the Colbert Rapport. As a conservative, it is tempting to gloat, but I'm going to be humble about this for two reasons. One, because I am amazing at being humble. Okay? Fantastic. And two, I want to be sensitive to all my liberal viewers. I have been told that some liberals do watch the show. I don't know why. It's a free country. The show itself was a sketch but with lots of monologue jokes. Only they were being delivered with a point of view that was backwards. Alison Silverman had written sketch comedy for Conan, topical monologue jokes for Jon Stewart. Then she joined the rapport, and her head started spinning. One of the hardest things, a lot of it was just pure joy, because, you know, he's just very funny and it, it was delightful. But uh, that thing that I was talking about uh, when I was at The Daily Show, this thing at The Daily Show where you had to, you know, come up with your point of view, um, you know, digest information, come up with your point of view very quickly and get it into jokes. And now there's this additional layer that, like, the, you have to come up with your point of view, then come up with the opposite point of view that's going to convey your point of view. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> and then make it funny. <laughs> yeah. That, that, no, it was act- crazy. Crazy relates not just to the work demands, but also to the lifestyle of a late night writer. It sort of boils down to this. Whatever else is going on, show up at work and be funny. We'll explore the unusual and often outright bonkers life of writing jokes for a living when we return to Behind the Desk after another short break. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. If you sign on to write for a late night show, it might not sink in for a while what it really means. You may be sick to your stomach from food poisoning. Your significant other might have just run off with an Uber driver. Your apartment in Brooklyn might be infested with bed bugs the size of baby sneakers. And your car might have just been repossessed. You still have to show up and be funny every day, full time. Jimmy Brogan speaks for many. The job is relentless and unforgiving. It's like running alongside a train. You know, ha! Ah, if you stop for a second, that train just keeps going. <laughs> and uh, it's what it was. You know, if I were, if if I were homesick, if I got the flu or something, Jay would call me at home to go over the jokes. It never stopped. <laughs> you know, my dad's 80th birthday party in Florida, I had to go to. 
Jay calls me, and uh, yeah, my dad, uh, yeah, uh, uh, your boss is on the phone, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jay, it, it just never stopped for nine years. But the writers would also look to see whose jokes got in every night. They thought, oh, my job depends on it. Exactly. So a tremendous pressure every night. Yeah, Jay's doing 25 jokes. I got one, right? Or none. Or day. maybe <laughs> I got none. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I don't last if, I don't, if that too many nights that happens. Yeah. Your fate as a late night writer is about the same as a baseball player. Keep getting hits and it's all slaps on the back. Strike out game after game, you're facing being cut from the team. You spend the first year knowing that you're going to get fired every day. <laughs> Look out the window. That metaphorical line has formed outside again, just like it does every day filled with funny people who want your job. It's no one's fault. It's just like the coolness of the job and the raggediness of you. It, it, it's just, it's the coolest thing to happen. So you you try so hard to make sure that you stay there. It results in a lot of stress. Of course, it's stressful to write for an established show, which is humming along with a deep and talented staff. But no late-night show starts out that way. Working for a new, inexperienced host, trying to be funny and survive at the same time, is a special level of stress. But that also adds to the pride when it works out, as it did for Robert Smigel with Conan O'Brien. I don't think there's anything I'm prouder of than the material we generated in those first six months that were so such turbulent time in terms of how the show was being accepted, even by the staff. I tell a story about how people back then, I would hear grumblings that the crew was grudgingly labeling the show every night live because uh. of the ambition behind so many of the sketches we did. We had sketches in between interviews and sometimes interrupting interviews, and we had full-blown sets for some sketches, you know, Let's cut to like 2009 or 10 and Jimmy Fallon has taken over the show and he's doing, he's doing incredibly detailed sketches. And, and it would be like every night they would have these things. And, um, and I hung out for like, you know, an afternoon and some of the people were just effusive about it. And they said, yeah, it's so ambitious. We call it every night live. <laughs> Allison Silverman was there on Conan's late night show during its creative high point. And nothing is happier than a writer's room filled with joyous people not worried about losing their jobs. I mean, Conan is so brilliant, and, and the stuff was so off the wall and fun. Um, it was a very, very silly room, and we would stay late. Um, at The Daily Show, we would not stay late. At Conan, we would stay late, but so, you know, sometimes joke writing to me has felt like, especially when you're doing it in small pieces, like a joke to joke thing, that it can feel sort of like a puzzle. You have a setup and it, it feels like there's one correct punchline to this and you just sort of knock away until you uh, find what you believe is, is the answer. And that can be really fun. Maybe the best thing that ever happens to a group of writers is when a late night show stumbles into a signature bit. This is a comedy sketch or stunt that works so well it becomes a recurring, reliable staple of the show. That means at some regular intervals, like every week, 
Jimmy Fallon's thank you notes, for example, or Leno's headlines, or every night, like Letterman's top 10 list, the writers get to focus on an established bit where the audience already knows where the jokes are going. On one notable occasion, Twitter helped out Jimmy Kimmel. Paul Rudd is the most boring vanilla dude. You know he just sits at home with his wife having a bland <laughs> spaghetti dinner talking about his day. That's pretty funny. Molly McNearney is the Kimmel Show's co-head writer and the star's wife. A domestic evening around the kitchen table with a friend, the author Kelly Oxford, set up one of the show's most famous bits. Mean Tweets was formed in our kitchen with my husband, Jimmy, and Kelly and Jimmy were going back and forth reading the terrible things people had said about them. I felt like it shined a spotlight on how rude and mean people are now, and I was hoping that it would kind of shut people up. I think, unfortunately, it may have amplified it. I think now people are trying to get their tweet and mean tweets. When Allison Silverman worked for Conan, every limit on what could be imagined for a comedy bit was thrown to the wild winds. Oh, God, one that I did that was called Gregorian Breast Implants. And it was, <laughs> we had this Gregorian, Jason Kirshner was a great designer, built this whole, like, Gregorian chapel with gardens outside it. And we made these little robes for actual breast implants, just like the silicone implants. And we had them, we did the stop action where they were, like, hoeing, and there were Gregorian <laughs> chants going on. Like, just so strange and fun and weird. So here's the story of a classic late-night bit. As you watched Conan in the 90s or the early 2000s, maybe you didn't get the initial reference unless you had seen a cheesy syndicated cartoon called Clutch Cargo. Clutch Cargo was a show that was so cheap that instead <laughs> of being an animated cartoon, they just used still comic drawings and cut out the mouths and had live actors speak in the little holes where the mouth should be. One of the celebrated writers for Conan's late-night show, Dino Stamatopoulos, came up with the idea, and he brought it to the head writer, Robert Smigel, who sold it to Conan and then became its star performer. But here he is tonight, live via satellite, President Bill Clinton. You know, I was like deliberately screwing with Bill Clinton. I mean, I was just like, hey, Conan, how you doing? I mean, he doesn't talk like that. Bob Dole was my favorite probably yeah. back then. Yeah. Bob Dole. And uh, yeah, but Arnold became a favorite. And uh, it was a great release for me to be able to perform and be really broad because it's not my personality at all. <laughs> but, but I went with this premise in my head that it's 1230 at night. And no one's watching, so I'm going to be the, I'm going to represent the id of the um, photograph that I'm screwing with. You know, it's like high school and you're just trying to make the other kids laugh. Nothing says late night like it's like high school. Almost everybody in late night comedy decided they were funny or were told they were sometime, somewhere in a high school class. Then it just became all about how that was going to be expressed as an adult, either on a stage or at a keyboard, one with letters on it, not sharps and flats. It has always taken ambition and luck, as well as talent, to get a job writing in late night, 
because there really is a lot of competition and it's hard to get noticed. But maybe that's changing. You know where people are getting reps in is Twitter. You tweet a poopy joke and no one um, likes it or retweets it. But if it's good, they like it and retweet it. And then you can kind of analyze the construction of it and see what worked and what didn't. But yeah, that's what I'm about. I'm about, are you finding out new things about it or not? And you do when you write jokes. Each way every joke you write is received gives you a world of information, you know? And if joke writing is interesting to you, then you'll receive it and and analyze it. And blah, blah, blah. Oh my gosh, look at how you have me sounding. (laughs) No, you are sounding smart and funny, Amber. Maybe you've inspired someone in high school or even much later in life to watch the news and write down a few gags. Johnny Carson was doing it past age 70 and he didn't even need the 75 bucks. Please come back and spend some time with us again. I'm Bill Carter. Yes, what the fantastic thing. Comedy (laughs) retrospective on CNN, thank goodness. They're (laughs) devoting so much of their resources to this very important story at the moment. Honestly, Bill, can you think of any story more important right now than... The history of late night and the rivalry between Conan and Jay. History will record this as an all-hands-on-deck moment. Where is Jake Tapper on this story? Be sure to listen and follow Behind the Desk, the story of late night, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please rate and review us. We'd love to know what you think. Behind the Desk, the story of late night, is a production of CNN Audio and CNN Original Series. It's executive produced by me, Bill Carter, as well as Johnny Kalangas, David Brady, and Kate Harrison Carmen. Megan Marcus is the executive producer of CNN Audio. For CNN Original Series, special thanks to Molly Harrington and Kira Bowden Gologorski. The producers are Mark Malkoff and Johnny Kalangas. Our editor is Nick Pruer, and our engineer is Neil McDonald. Matt McClellan is our line producer. Special thanks to Amy Antellis, Ashley Lusk, Courtney Coop, John Ehler, and of course, to all the great people who share their experiences and insights with us. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.